Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, and I know we've got a couple of first-time guests, which is impressive on a, a weather day like this. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. I really appreciate you guys coming on out. It is crazy out there, so we appreciate it. Our at-home audience, I don't blame you for staying home, so welcome. We appreciate you guys are here joining us at home. Feel free to interact in the comments section. We've got our team that you can chat with and you can say hello to each other as well. But if it is your first time here, we are in week four of this series that we've been calling The Road Ahead, where we've been taking a look at the life and the journey of Paul the Apostle, this guy who wrote over half of the New Testament. And this series is our attempt to put ourselves into his shoes, to sort of see what he saw, experience what he experienced, meet the people he met. And the hope is that by doing this, it will bring a greater level of richness to the scripture that he wrote. We might be able to understand it at a deeper level and perhaps even understand why he wrote what he wrote and, and maybe even when he wrote when he wrote. So this week I was looking at his life and I was trying to find another account that we could dive into to sort of look at a different angle of Paul. And I found a really interesting situation that he was involved in. And what's so fascinating about what I'm going to show you today is that this event in Paul's life, there are many pastors. Now, I'm not saying many theologians. I'm saying pastors. There are many pastors believe that what I'm about to show you is perhaps Paul's greatest failure. That they believe that what you're about to see is Paul jeopardizing his beliefs, jeopardizing his message, compromising even the gospel. But I actually think what you're going to see is sheer brilliance. Theologians look at what Paul is about to show you, and they would say that he's really putting on a master class in evangelism. And I would argue that much of what we do here at Downtown Harbor Church, much of our DNA is rooted in what Paul is going to do today. Now, I'll just kind of give you a heads up. I was speaking to a couple of people before the, um, after the last service, and they go, you should warn these folks. It's some heavy lifting today where there's some complex issues. And the reason that is is that Paul was really the guy who formulated the Christian theology, and you're going to see him kind of work through that a little bit today. Before we dive into the account, let me remind you about Jesus's mission for Paul, what he specifically called Paul to do. And we looked at this in week one, right after Paul had what we call the Damascus Road experience, when he was a guy who hated Christian, was on his way to kill Christians, and then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life was changed. Right after that, um, the Lord spoke into the life of another Christian and said this, Ananias, go, go to Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish. He's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. Now, although Paul is Jewish and he will be speaking to everybody, his niche practice, if you will, is Gentile evangelism, preaching the gospel to people who are not Jewish. Now, what's so interesting is that outside of today, what I'm going to show you, we really have almost no record of what Paul actually preached to the people he was called to preach to. We have, we have a couple of sound bites. I mean, we know he spoke to the Gentiles. He did that in week two to our Roman jailer buddy. But what we're going to see today is really the only full sermon that he preached to the people that Jesus called him to preach to. Now, the group that he's going to be speaking with today, they are, they're brilliant. They're just absolutely brilliant people. However, 
They don't know Jesus, like at all. They've never heard of him. They don't know the name. They have no idea what Christianity is. The Old Testament, it's, it's really meaningless to them. So this, what Paul is going to bring to them is all brand new. So let's kind of jump in. So Paul has been traveling around the Mediterranean, um, planting churches, visiting various cities. And today, he finds himself in Athens, Greece, and he's all by himself, and he's waiting for his travel companions to meet him. And that's where we begin. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, if you remember back to high school history class, um, Athens was really the world capital for academia. Okay, it, it, was, it was ground zero for Greek philosophy. So we're talking Plato and Aristotle. We're talking Socrates. And you'll also remember that the Greeks, and specifically the Athenians, they loved religion. They loved that Greek mythology stuff. So we're talking Zeus, Poseidon, uh, Athena. And so Paul's walking around Athens like a tourist. He's got a gyro in his hand or a hero, depending on how you pronounce it. And, and, and Luke, who wrote Athens, describes it as being full of idols. And this Greek word full really means more like overflowing with idols or perhaps even drowning in idols. And as it says, Paul, as he saw all of this, was greatly distressed. Now, the Greek word for greatly distressed is this word paraxuno. And it's very difficult to translate that into English, which is why our translation says he was greatly distressed, your Bible, depending on what translation you're using, it, it might say that he was angry. Others say provoked. But paroxuno has really more of a nuanced meaning to it. Paroxuno means that on the one hand, Paul was angry at what he saw in that city. But when he says he was angry, it's more like a righteous angry. Like he was, he was offended on God's behalf that so many idols were just everywhere and taking over an entire city. But on the other hand, Paraxuno, Paul felt love and compassion for the people of Athens. That when he saw their spiritual state that he in, he just felt this compassion in his heart for them. And so if we kind of dip back into what we learned last week, because of Paul's love for God, because of his love for others, Paul was going to show his love for God by walking into that city and beginning to explain to these folks exactly who Jesus is. So he goes into the synagogue, and it says that he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And a God-fearing Greek really is just a Greek person who believes in our God, but they're not really Jewish. They're not Christian, they're not Jewish, but they do believe in our God, so it's almost this third unusual kind of a group. Now, whenever Paul went into a new city, as you guys have learned in the prior weeks, he would always look for the, the, the group of Jews that may live there. He looks for a synagogue, and he goes there first. And that's what he does here. And he opens up the Old Testament for them, or as they would call it, the Hebrew Bible. They're very familiar with the Hebrew Bible. And he points to prophecies, and he points to parables, and he points to patterns, and he explains to them that all of this points to Jesus Christ, the man who lived and died and rose again, just over there in Israel. But once he was done in the temple, once he was done in the synagogue, he set his sight on the marketplace. And he went down there, and in this marketplace, he began to speak to people day by day. And this is where things began to get a little interesting for Paul. So the marketplace in Athens was just the hub of everything social. 
It was called the Agora, outside, kind of agoraphobia. It was called the Agora, and you would go there to do your shopping. There would be artists there. There would be philosophers you know, giving sort of speeches or debating with one another. Uh, business dealings would happen here. And so Paul heads down to the Agora, and he sets up shop. Now, theologians would say that Paul didn't go into the marketplace and sort of put his crate on the ground, stand up onto it, and, and began railing against the population. He wasn't preaching fire and brimstone to these folks like you see going on in the corner of Oakland Park Boulevard by Target. Right? That's not sort of the tactics that Paul used. Rather, what theologians will say is that he would walk around and begin to strike up conversations with people who looked as though they wanted to have a deeper theological discussion. And because it was Athens... That was pretty much everybody. So he's out there and he's mixing it up and it says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So now he's got a couple of groups on the hook. Let me briefly explain to you the beliefs of these two schools of philosophical thought because it's somewhat important for the day. At a very elementary level, Epicureans believed that if there were a god or if there were gods, they were very far away in a different world, and they were not interested in interacting with humans at all. They did not care about our lives at all. Stoic philosophers believed that there were many gods. They were pantheists, and they believed that gods were found in everything. There was a god in a rock. There was a god of a harvest. There was a god of this and a god of that. And so Paul is now mixing it up with these two groups. And some of them, listening to him speak, go, what is this babbler trying to say? Right? I mean, they, un they understand the Greek language. Paul is speaking in Greek to them, but they are very confused as to what he is trying to communicate to them. So others speak up and say, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And I find that interesting, that they're listening to Paul speak about Jesus, and they think he's talking about foreign gods. Not just a foreign god, but foreign gods, multiple gods. Why? Why do they think that? Well, Luke, who wrote Acts, explains. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, okay, but that doesn't really answer the question about the multiple gods. Because if Luke said, well, they said this because Paul was preaching about the Trinity, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that threw them because that pretty much throws everybody. It's a kind of a confusing concept, but that's not what's going on here. So what was it about Paul preaching Jesus and the resurrection that made them think he was talking about foreign gods with an S? Let me explain. When we as Christians hear that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, we think Jesus and an event. But the Greeks, when they heard Paul talking about that, they heard Jesus and Anastasia. It's the Greek word for resurrection. It's a feminine noun. And they were under the impression that he was speaking about some goddess. Now, Paul was talking about a pair of deities. Because Greek deities, outside of Zeus and Poseidon and Hermes, Greek deities often bore abstract qualities as their name. There was a Greek god, Fate. There was a Greek god, Mercy. There was one called Effort. There was one called Shame. And so they assumed that resurrection was just some other deity. And I find that fascinating because that just shows you how foreign this concept of Jesus was for these folks. I mean, Paul ain't in Kansas anymore. There's a whole different ball game than what was going on up the street at the synagogue. 
Now, here's why this is important for us. When we're out there in the world, and if you're a Christian and, and you're, 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 you're speaking to others about your faith, we shouldn't assume that others know anything. We want to we make sure that we choose words that they will understand, but that will also lead them to Christ. So we want to drop the Christianese, and I know you guys, you're not really much of folks that use the Christianese kind of a language, but we want to drop the fancy words. We want to be thoughtful in how we share our faith with other people because how you say something can be just as important as what you say. And Paul in this moment realizes, well, he can't use his normal script with these Gentiles. Whatever worked up there at the synagogue ain't going to work down here with the Greeks. But he has captured their attention. And it says that then they took him and brought him to a meeting place of the Areopagus. And we're going to talk about what the Areopagus is in just a second. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Now, verse 19, which we're looking at right here, this is where the debate begins for a lot of theologians. And the question they're wrestling with is, what exactly is happening here? Why? is Paul going to the Areopagus. Because on the one hand, it appears that he's being invited to go there to share this new teaching, to have a discussion about these new gods. And yet on the other hand, it appears he's being taken there by force. Because notice that it says they took him and they brought him. So what is the Areopagus? Well, here's a picture of what the Areopagus, Areopagus looks like. It's a, um, a rocky outcrop, if you will, right in the middle of Athens. And it was used as the official meeting place to discuss religious concepts. But it was also where criminal trials took place. And the reason theologians believe that it wasn't just Paul's theology that was on trial, but perhaps Paul himself, is because 500 years earlier, on this very rock, Socrates, the greatest Greek philosopher there ever was, was tried and convicted right here in the same place. And guess what the charges were that were brought against him? Advocating a foreign God. So that adds a whole new level of drama to what we're about to read. That, whole, that adds a whole new level of tension to what we're about to read. And so Paul, he's up there on this rock, and he's surrounded by the who's who's of Athens. Philosophers, academics, city officials, and then the proceedings begin. Someone says, Paul, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. So would you please kind of stand up and would you start from the beginning and just explain to us one more time exactly what you're talking about? Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He begins by being very respectful, not just to them, but to what they believe. And I just think as Christians, we can take note from that. Because when we're speaking to other folks about what they believe or perhaps what they don't believe, we want to be respectful. Because whether you're speaking to, you know, someone who's Muslim or Hindu or Jewish, or they're just spiritual, or they believe in the healing power of crystals, whatever the case may be, our job as Christians is not to trash their beliefs. Our job is to show them love and respect which will hopefully open up the door for us at some point to share Jesus with them. He continues. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. 
Now, archaeologists have uncovered a Roman version of this exact same altar. Here's a picture of one. So this is what Paul found. So he's walking around the city, and he, and he lands on this altar to a god that they don't know. And it made him realize something. The Greeks, they had uncertainty. They had a lot figured out. Math, not a problem. Science, good to go. Astronomy, architecture, brilliant. Figured it out. But when it came to religion, they were a little uncertain. And aren't we all at some level? I mean, even as Christians, there's just some things we're never going to know this side of heaven. And uncertainty is what drives certain folks to come to church, you know, on Christmas and Easter. I got family members. They only go twice a year. They call it fire insurance, okay? And they, and they go, John, look, here's the deal. We respect you, right? We're not really sure if God exists or not. But just in case, we're going to go, okay? Just in case. This is a just in case kind of a statue. So Paul talks about this unknown God, and, and he says, look, this God, whom you guys worship without knowing, well, he's the one I'm telling you about. Now, this is brilliant, because if Paul were an attorney, and some actually believe he was an attorney at some point in his life, what he's just done here is he's effectively proven that he's not advocating a foreign God. I mean, if I'm on trial for advocating a foreign God, that is not what I'm doing. The God that I'm talking to you about you already know exists. You just don't know his name. All I'm doing is filling in the details. Now, what we're about to see is Paul beginning to teach these Gentile Greeks about Christ. He's about to share the gospel with these folks. He's about to evangelize these folks. He's about to do the very thing that Jesus tapped him to do. But it's going to look very different to you. It's going to look very different to what you're normally used to seeing from a, from a church stage when someone explains the gospel to a crowd of folks. And what you're about to see is what many pastors believe is a complete failure on Paul's part. And as I said, I think it's brilliant, but you guys can decide for yourself. So he launches into this sermon. He, speaking of this unknown God, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. He starts off by beginning to address and rewire the philosopher's understanding of God. Because to those Epicureans who believe that if God exists, he's far away and not interested in our lives, Paul's saying, no. He created the world and everything in it. And he's intimately involved in everything that we do. And to the Stoics, he would say, those of you who believe that God is in every single object, in fact, he is distinct from his creation. You can't reduce the creator into the created thing. He continues. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. God is complete. He's self-sustaining. He's all-powerful. He is lacking nothing. There is nothing that you can give to God that he needs. There is nothing that you can bring to him that adds to him. And this resonates with the Greeks because they were in a practice of bringing offerings to their gods. They would have called it almost a bribe. I'm going to give you this so that you give me something in return. And Paul's like, that doesn't work with God. There's nothing that you can give him that he needs. Rather, he himself gives life and breath to everything. He's not a God that takes. He's a God that gives. And for years, telling them, for years, you've attributed everything in your life 
to various gods. God of love, God of harvest. But I'm telling you, Paul would say, the one true God is responsible for every blessing in your life. He continues. From one man, now he's speaking about Adam. But the Greeks really have no clue who Adam is, so he doesn't use the name. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determines their boundaries. Now, because God created the entire world, he is the God of the entire world. Now, that was revolutionary to the Greeks because they believed in geographical gods. There were the Roman gods, there were the Greek gods, there were the Egyptian gods, there were the Persian gods. Paul's saying, there's one God of all people, everywhere, in every nation. And speaking of the people that he has now created, God, he would say, well, God wanted them to look for him and perhaps search all around for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us, right then he's speaking right into the Epicureans. He goes, he's not far. He's right next to us. God is knowable and God wants to be known. And the fact that you guys have created an altar to the unknown God, that tells me you're doing exactly what God created you to do. You're seeking after him. You're like somebody in a dark room. You're feeling around for the light switch. You're this close, but I'm going to help you find it. And then he does something that I believe would have shocked his audience. He begins to quote their own poets. Quoting poetry, he says, For in him we live and move and are. And as one of your poets say, now he's pointing to the Stoic philosophers, as one of your poets says, we are the sons of God. They would have been stunned. They would have been shocked. Because everyone in that room would have immediately recognized this poem, Phenomena, it's called. This guy's quoting Greeks. Here's why this is so brilliant. In an effort to bring these people to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament because, I mean, they have no connection to that book at all. He doesn't quote the New Testament because, well, it's not written yet. Instead, Paul reaches into their culture to find common ground. He takes his understanding of Jesus, his understanding of God, his understanding of God's truth, and finds something that they are familiar with that will guide them to the truth. He's bridging the gap of their two cultures. Now, here's what I firmly believe. If Paul did this in many modern American churches, he'd get angry emails. How dare you? Are you telling me that you use something secular to talk about Jesus? You, talk, you use poetry to point people to God? How dare you? But what Paul is doing right here is what we do at this church all the time when we choose a pop song to close out a service. Because we believe that Paul is onto something here. We believe that it's possible to leverage things that are outside of Christianity to point people to Christ. And we've received angry emails, but I always ask them, would you tell Paul that he was wrong? Then he kind of shifts gears. And he says, guys, we shouldn't think of God as an idol made by men from gold or silver or chipped from stone, essentially. If your understanding, guys, if your understanding of the divine 
has led you to create idols? Well, then you've, you've misunderstood the divine. Later in Paul's life, particularly in the letter written to the Romans, Paul would formalize what he's kind of landing on here at a very introductory level. And what he's kind of talking about here is this idea of natural revelation. I'm going to explain this to you as briefly as I can because this is interesting. Paul would later argue in full what he's doing here in part. He would later argue that God has revealed himself so clearly to humanity, so clearly to the world through his creation. He's revealed himself to people through the stars in the sky, through the planets that surround the earth, through gorgeous sunsets, through vast oceans. Nature makes it clear, Paul would argue, that there is a God. And because that's the case, humans have no excuse to deny his presence. But, and this is a big but, without the full revelation of God through Jesus, without understanding who Jesus is, people have misinterpreted God's creation. And as Paul would say, they traded the truth about God for a lie. And so what did they do? They worshiped and served things God created instead of the creator himself who was worthy of eternal praise. Meaning they looked at the stars, they looked at the planets, they looked at the harvest, they looked at the ocean, and they worshiped those things. And eventually, it led to idols and statues and Zeus and Athena and Poseidon. He would say, guys, you saw the glory of God. You saw the glory of God's creation, but you misunderstood that glory. And in the past, now he's talking to the Athenians, in the past, God, he's overlooked such ignorance, meaning he's overlooked such misunderstanding, such misinterpretation. God has cut you some slack in the past because you didn't have the full story. You were trying, but you missed the mark. But now, and this Greek word now means like right now, this instant, in our lifetime, right over there in Israel, he commands everyone to put away idols and worship only him. Now think about the magnitude of this statement. You got some unknown Hebrew guy all by himself, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, standing before brilliant academics, brilliant philosophers, Athenian politicians. And he is proclaiming that the one true God has revealed himself to the world. I have now shared him with you. And now? Well, now you've got to walk away from everything you know. Your statues, your altars, your idols, your temples, Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes. The one true God commands that you put it away and worship only him. Four, he has set a day when he will judge the world with the justice by the man he has appointed. And that man that's Jesus Christ. The whole point of this meeting up there is to talk about Jesus Christ, that God has appointed a man, a God-man, that is so wise, so powerful, so perfect, that he'll be able to rule and judge the entire world with justice. And the reason you can believe me, Paul would say, the reason you can believe what I'm saying is because 
he has given proof of this to everyone. To which I feel like the crowd would go, wait, 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 hold on, wait, wait. Paul. Proof? You got, you got proof of this? Yeah. So you're, so you're saying that when it comes to religion, that when it comes to God, that we can actually have certainty? That's what I'm saying. Well, what's the proof? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And guys, I didn't just learn about this by reading a book. I mean, there's not really a book written about this yet. I didn't hear about it from a guy who knew a guy who dated a girl whose manager was in a band. And so, okay, I came from where this happened. I spoke to the eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. There were 500 of them. You can go over there and talk to them yourself. And what's more? I saw him too. And he changed my life. And that's why I'm here. Thousands of miles away from home, all by myself. To tell you about him. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, the Athenians fell to their knees. Some began to destroy the statues of the gods. What a powerful scene. Except I made this up. But you guys know because you read the Bible. Okay? Now, listen, if the Bible were fake, if men came together 2,000 years ago to concoct some story in order to get power and get money, this is the kind of story you would read right here. This is the kind of reaction you would see. That Paul, some Hebrew, marches into the most brilliant city in the world, preaches Jesus, and the crowd goes wild. But here's what really happened. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's a real reaction. Because it's a real conversation happening between real people. And in this life, there are going to be people that sneer at your beliefs and sneer at the resurrection. I mean, these philosophers, they hear Paul talking about this and they go, oh, come on, you're kidding me, right? You brought me up here to listen to this? This is a joke. You're wasting my time. Listen, listen. I know, Paul, I know there's certain things that I am uncertain of, but what I do know for certain is that when you're dead, you're dead. So spare yourself with the resurrection stuff. But others, they said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Paul, you've opened our eyes. You might be on to something here. Would you, would you mind telling us more? Because we're listening. The story wraps up. So Paul went away from the people. Some people followed him and became Christians. One was Dionysius, a leader in the city. A woman named Damaris believed, and there were others also. I got to be honest with you, when I, I struggle with people that call this a failure. I really do. I mean, they claim that because Paul didn't overtly quote Scripture, that he jeopardized his message. They claim that because he used Greek poetry to point folks to God, that he compromised the gospel. And because he made such compromises, only a few conversions took place that day. To which I want to say, wait, wait, only a few? 
only a few. Let's not forget that Jesus himself preached not one, but three parables in a row teaching us that heaven rejoices when one person comes to know Jesus. Have we as Christians gotten to a place where we no longer rejoice over one person coming to know God? Coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? As though that's a failure? To me, this is a success story. And I'm going to tell you why. Because two people, Dionysius and Damaris that we know of, two people who didn't know Jesus, now know Jesus as their Savior. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we throw this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Now, ultimately, this encounter teaches us about evangelism, teaching us about how we are to share the gospel and the importance of doing that. And it shows us that we really do need to reach out to the world around us. But at times, we got to adapt our approach. So here's a couple of things just to keep on your radar as we follow in Paul's path in perhaps our own lives of sharing the scriptures. We want to make sure that we engage from a heart of compassion. I mean, it is evident from Paul that, that he cared for these people. He loved these people despite their wildly different views. He never got angry. He never got defensive. He didn't show up with some spiritual chip on his shoulder. He reached out to them in love. And I just want to challenge us that as we begin to reach out to the culture around us, that we reach out in love and compassion, not anger and judgment. Because let me tell you something. If people don't know you love them, they're not going to listen to you. So let's be kind. Let's be compassionate. Let's be loving. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will open up a chance for us to speak about Jesus to the people in our lives. And when we do open up, when we do share our faith, remember that life change, it takes time. I think so often we as Christians, as excited as we are, we want to see people respond immediately to the gospel. Truth is, that kind of change doesn't really happen overnight. Billy Graham, I don't know if you know Billy Graham, but Billy Graham once famously said that it takes 40 people to bring one person to Christ. 39 who think they failed, one who takes all the credit. Now, Paul that day, he preached the gospel. And the vast majority of folks, they walked away. They sneered. But who knows what happened in their life down the road? He planted a seed. Now, why do I tell you this? The reason I tell you this is because a lot of us have shared Christ with our friends or family or coworkers, and it felt like you just hit a wall. It was just, it was just, it was like it didn't even make any impact at all. And sometimes we hit so many walls in life that we just kind of say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm not really going to share my faith anymore. I'm not really going to talk to other people about Jesus because it, I, I don't really see any fruit from it, so to speak. Remember that ultimately our job as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, is to plant seed in people's lives. Just to plant seeds. So don't give up. 
Keep sharing. Keep inviting them to the next conversation because you never know, you never know what the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. It could be the next Damaris or the next Dionysius. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come together both in person and online in the midst of this storm. I thank you, Lord, for what we've learned today from your scripture. God, that you are everywhere, that your, pro- that your creation proclaims your name, and I am so grateful, Lord, that your son Jesus Christ has pointed us to you. I pray, Lord, that as we we leave today that you would help us in our own walk. Lord, that as we as Christians in the room interact with other folks, that that you would give us the words to speak into their lives, words that heal, and words that ultimately illuminate them towards Jesus. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen.